Hello again, and I welcome you back to the Way, the Truth, and the Life Bible Study. This is lesson number five, uh, but in last week's lesson, in lesson number four, we looked at the role of covenant. Uh, just a quick recap, God had covenants with Adam and Eve and Noah, but Abraham is where the concept of covenant is really solidified in Scripture. God loved his people so much that he's willing to bind himself to a deal, almost like a business document or legal document, and he assigned part of that deal in blood, the blood of Calvary. And Abraham, he left his father's house and was circumcised uh, and, and had a child when he was in his 90s, uh, circumcised as his part of the covenant. And he was even willing to give up his own son Isaac in worship, but of course God did not require that. It was just a test of faith. And so tonight, today we look at the lesson is entitled, Deliverance Through the Blood. And if you have any questions, as always, please email info at refugechurchonline.com and we will do our very best to get to every question and respond in the best way that we possibly can. But let's pray as we always do before each lesson. God, thank you so much, Lord, for another, another opportunity to look into your word, to study your word, to see how your word is still alive and applies today. It's not just a historical book where we're just memorizing facts, figures, and names, but it's, it's principles applied to us where we are, no matter who we are, where we're watching, when we're watching this, your word is still alive and applicable. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So buckle your seatbelts because we are getting ready to do a little bit of a bridge of Israel's history and the way that things developed from the time of Abraham. As we looked at last time, Abraham and Sarah, they waited 25 years before they finally had their promised son, Isaac. So Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, but then Isaac eventually grows up and he has two sons of his own. And their son, his son's names were Jacob and Esau. Now, like his grandfather, Jacob, he did a lot of things well, but he still wasn't perfect. But Jacob continued as he grew, he continued to live life in obedience in alignment with the covenant that God gave his grandfather, Abraham, like we talked about last week. And, and just like Abram gets his, change, his name changed from Abram to Abraham, Jacob also has his name changed. Genesis 32 tells us about that. It says, he said to him, what is thy name? And, and he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall no, longer be, no more be called Jacob, but Israel. For, thou, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with man and has prevailed. The nation of Israel, as we know it today, it didn't, be, it didn't begin as a nation. It's not like God just called a whole entire group of people. It started off, the nation of Israel started off as one man. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, has his name changed to Israel. That one man had 12 sons, and then those sons had children. And the nation of Israel, so to speak, the nation as we know it, it began to grow. It went from an individual to a family and then to an entire population of people. And all of a sudden, we start seeing God's promises that he gave to Abraham start to come into fruition. Wow, look, okay, now it's, Abraham didn't get to see that in his lifetime necessarily, but, but now Jacob is having kids and his kids are having kids and, then, and it's becoming a nation. Well, at that time, a, a, a global, of, that we know it, in the, in the known world, a global famine 
hits the area. Israel has one of his sons who God used miraculously to get into leadership in, in Egypt. His name was Joseph. And so Joseph now is in Egypt, and uh, he helps Egypt and really the whole world, the, the known world at that time, prepare for this epidemic, this, this, uh, this famine. And so eventually God brings, it's a reuniting of Joseph with his father Israel and all of their family, and they reunite in the land of Egypt. Now, Scripture tells us when this happens, there were 70 Israelites, that's what they're called, it's just descendants of Israel, the man Israel, Jacob, who had his name changed, 70 Israelites end up in the nation of Egypt, and they settle there. Joseph is in charge, second to, to the Pharaoh, he's helping provide food for everybody, but especially his family, it's a time of prosperity and blessing, and Israel, the man that we knew as Jacob, dies, and then his son Joseph eventually dies also, and this is where those Israelites that had settled in Egypt, problems now start for them. Because Exodus 1.8 says, there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. Now, the problems for Israel, in, in the Israelites, now the problems begin. Because I don't care who Israel is. I don't care who Joseph is. Well, Joseph, that doesn't matter to me. All I see is there's a growing number of people in our nation, and it's a threat to us. That's what they saw. Exodus 1.9, he said to the people, look, the people of Israel, the new leader, the new pharaoh, it looks at Israel, and it says, hey, they outnumber us. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't and war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies. They're going to fight against us. They will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. See, through the ages, God's people have, they've, the enemy has always tried to, to stifle, to stop God's people. But anytime we see that happen, God's people continue to grow stronger and stronger. So let that be a word of encouragement, but, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became as they kept growing. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in their demands. So instead of fighting back or leaving or trying to leave, the Israelites stay in the nation of, Israel, of Egypt, and they stay in bondage for four hundred years. Although challenging things happen in life, though, God's never unaware. He doesn't lose track of his people. It's not like he steps away to have dinner and goes, oh, no, where did the people go that, that are my people? That doesn't happen. Several hundred years earlier, when God's talking to Abraham about a chosen people and developing that nation, he tells Abraham exactly what's going to happen. Genesis 15, 13 says, he said, Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they will come out with grave substance. That is exactly what transpired. 
Even when things seem bleak, God has a plan. He knows the way. In this case, God had a plan to, to feed his people, to get them to Egypt, but they were never supposed to stay in Egypt and settle there. That was not their land of promise. So God says, I'm going to take you out. There's going to be a nation of substance. You're going to be blessed. If you remember, God told Abraham that the land he would give to his people, he said, it's going to be my promised land, a land of promise. Genesis 17 says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So as we move into this, now they're, they're in Egypt, just like what God told Abram. It happens. They're in Egypt 400 years, and, and even though Abraham, Isaac, and even Jacob, Israel, they're dead and gone, God's promise of an everlasting covenant with their lineage, their seed, it still is very much, he says it's an everlasting covenant, so that the covenant's still there. So God now says, you know what? My people are in the land of Egypt, and they're going to be here 400 years. That's exactly what happens, 400 years. So God's people no doubt a majority of them, some that maybe knew scripture or had knew about things, might have been like, hey, where, where's the deliverer? Where is, where is the, I say scripture, but just written record. Where's the written, written record? We know that there's a, a deliverer promise. We know that we're going to only be here for 400 years. Where is this person? Well, God sends a deliverer, a man named Moses. And Moses goes in, and, and, and he's going to tell the Egyptian pharaoh, let my people go. Well, that doesn't work out so well. But in, in, in Moses' calling, we see that God had a relationship. He spoke with Adam and Eve. He spoke with Cain and Abel. He spoke with Noah. He spoke with Abraham. So God had interaction with humanity before this time. But we don't see the type of interaction. We see something different now transpire with this man named Moses. Look at Exodus 3.11. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should br uh, bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly, God says, I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, and that all that I have sent, sent thee, when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses says something to God, behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you. They're going to say to me, what is his name? So what should I say to them? It's important to understand the context of that day. Egypt was a polytheistic nation. This means they worshipped many gods. There was a a sun god, a moon god, a god of fertility. The Nile River was viewed as a god, a god of harvest. Even a cow could have been a god because of reincarnation or something. And so we already discussed a person's name was everything. Sarai has her name changed to Sarah, which means mother of nations, which is exactly what she was going to be. So you, you were your name. Your name kind of encapsulated it. It, it captured who you were as an individual. And so what is happening here? It identified who you were. So when Moses says, God, he says, okay, what's your name? I understand the mission. Here's what I'm going to do. This is what you want me to do. But what's your name? How do I capture 
who you are. God, Moses is, in, in essence, he's asking God, am I saying you're the God of harvest, the God of deliverance, the God of fertility, the God of direction, of healing, of power? What, what are you? How do I describe you to the people of both Egypt and my own people? And look how God responds. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. How would you like that? How would you like that for a name? All right, we're going to take a roll call today. We have Susie, Jim, Tom, Sarah, Jessica, and I am that I am. <laughs> That's not really a name, but God says, you tell them I am, the I am sent you. I am that I am. You just tell them I am sent you. That's a powerful statement there. We might not fully understand, but what is God saying there? He's basically saying, you will not put me in a box. You will not limit me based on a name. You will not capture who I am with syllables. If you need a healer, I am. If you need a deliverer, I am. If you're barren and, need a, and, and desire a child, I am. If you need victory, I am. If you need a miracle, I am. If you are need a savior, I am. I am whatever you need me to be because I have all power. And that's interesting because someone else in the Bible makes that exact same claim. Matter of fact, he makes it and people in the New Testament want to kill him for that statement. It's Jesus Christ. John 8, 57, the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years, you're not yet 50 years old. How hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, be fairly I say unto you, before Abraham was, now you got to remember, the Jews of that New Testament time, they're, they're looking for a deliverer again from Roman oppression in the New Testament. And Abraham was the God of, I mean, he's the God of covenant. They, they revered Abraham. So here comes a, what they might view, view as a false prophet or something, saying, oh, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked the stones. They wanted to kill him. Why? Because they understood the claim he made. Jesus was claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. And we're going to look more about, about who Jesus was in just a couple of lessons. But Moses, finally, he goes to Egypt and he takes his brother Aaron with him, and they walk into Pharaoh's courts and say, let my people go. It doesn't work out so well. So Pharaoh looks and says, I don't know you. I don't know your God. Well, he did know him. But he says, I don't know your God. I don't know. I don't, I don't care about your God. And so now starts the beginning of Egyptian plagues. And people think that the plagues, oh, this is, this is Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh, or this is Israel versus Egypt. It's none of the above. This is really a story of the God of Israel versus all of the pagan gods of Egypt. God of Israel versus the pagan gods of Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world at that time. So God starts sending plagues, and he disrupts. He disrupts their way of life, intentionally makes them uncomfortable, not only to get their attention, but to get his own people's attention. So he sends a plague of blood in the land and frogs everywhere, lice or gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of every firstborn. I wish I could go through every one of these, but I want to spend time by looking at that last one, but, but just understand, even turning the Nile River to blood, 
even turning the Nile River to blood in that first um, plague. It was clear and direct statement. God went to the Nile. The Nile was their source of life. They worshiped the Nile. The Nile was a God to them. So when Moses comes and says, boom, puts his rod in the Nile and the Nile turns to blood, that was a clear statement of God saying, I am more powerful than any God that you have in this land. What power from God. But this last plague, God says, I'm going to take the firstborn throughout the land. Look at Exodus 11, 4 through 6. It says, Moses said, thus saith the Lord about midnight, I'm going to go into the midst of Egypt, and all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that's behind the mill, and even the firstborn of the beasts, the animals. There will be a cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it anymore. You can imagine that cry. I mean, you're watching. Are you a firstborn? Who's the firstborn in your family? Imagine waking up in the morning, that firstborn is gone. It's, that person's dead. Might be you, might be a sibling. But there would be a cry. If, if you walked out, because later scripture says there was not one home where there wasn't at least one dead. Imagine waking up in your city and every single home had at least one dead in the home. There would be a cry unlike we have ever experienced and that's exactly what happened here. And so God says, I'm going to take the firstborn. At midnight, all the firstborn people, they were going to die. How sad, but would, would the Israelites lose their firstborn too? That doesn't seem like a kind or a fair God. Well, just remember the foundational theme of salvation we talked about, grace faith, and obedience. With that in mind, look at God's portrait of grace. Exodus 12, 3, it says, Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to, him, to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to, unto his house Take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You'll take it out of the sheep or from the goats. Keep it to the 14th day of the month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it when? In the evening. They'll take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper post of the house wherein they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh in it that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it in the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded and shoes on your feet, meaning they were to be ready for what God was doing next. They were supposed to eat ready, be prepared. Your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it with haste. It's the Lord's Supper, Lord's Passover, I'm sorry. So some of you, as I'm reading this, you might have already tuned out, like, yeah, 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 okay, well, I get it. I mean, like, at first glance, that passage seems like a bunch of worthless details. It seems like a bunch of worthless details. It's, oh, yeah, take the lamb from this part, this old, kill it at night, eat it this way, like, who cares? I mean, you know, just like we see with Noah, God shares the plan for salvation with Noah, and he says, make a boat, make it this long, this wide, high, this high, use this type of wood, put the window here. 
There's all these different expectations, guidelines. Well, here again, we see God say, don't just, hey, kill an animal, put the blood on the door. It needed to be God's plan for their salvation was so specific. But God's grace, grace, faith, and obedience, God's grace always appears and says, here's the plan. I'm going to give it to you in depth. God never just says, ah, I believe in some form of a higher being, and, and that's good for you, and that's all that matters. Anytime God had a plan to save someone's life, it was a specific plan that was clearly laid out. Here's what I want you to do. Here's my expectations. Here's what's going to happen if you do it. Here's what's going to happen if you don't. And so we see here God says to Moses, a tenth day of the month, one lamb per household, male lamb without blemish, keep it to the 14th day, kill it at twilight, put blood on the doorpost. They needed to have a covering of the blood in order to be saved, their firstborn to be saved. They had to not only have the blood shed, but then they had to stay inside the covering of the blood. So when someone says, oh, you can never lose your salvation, listen, if I leave the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm in a dangerous spot. So just like Noah's Ark, it says people, you know, they, they could have said, ah, it's not a big deal. Who cares? I, I know it's a boy lamb, but I got a girl lamb over here. Or you know what? Uh, we put it on the doorpost and, and we have blood on our house. I don't want our neighbors to think we're weird. I'm not doing that. Or let's not waste good food. Let's save it for the weekend. We have some leftovers. All of those things would have gone against the guidelines God laid out. So guess what happens? If they go against any of those things, their firstborn dies. God had a very specific plan to save his people. And I want you to see that even though the blood was shed, it did not become powerful until it was applied. The blood can be shed, and you could still be lost until the blood is applied. So grace, God lets his people know, hey, I'm going to take the firstborn. Here's my plan. Faith is positive or negative mental assent. Either, yes, I believe you, Lord, or no, I'm not buying it. If they say, I just don't believe, that's crazy. Their firstborn died. But even if they say, man, that's a good plan. Thanks for letting me know, God. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. I know this is going to happen. And they don't kill the animal and apply the blood. Firstborn also dies. Yeah, but I believe. It doesn't matter. There was always grace, faith, and obedience. And so that's why Exodus 12, 28 says, the children of Israel went away and did. They did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. We can fly past that verse and think, oh, that's not a big deal. That's a huge verse. That's the verse that is part of their salvation. They did what they were commanded to do. That's obedience. In verse 29, it came to pass at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Firstborn of the cattle in the dungeon, all the firstborn. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians. There was a cr great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Wow. What a terrible picture that is. But you see, God has a perfect plan for our lives too. One that he desires to save us and cover our sins in the blood. That's the blood of Calvary, the blood of the cross that Jesus died on. Just like the innocent lamb, whose blood was shed back then, that actually pointed to what was eventually going to happen in the New Testament on the cross. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, 
But how were you redeemed? With the precious blood of Christ. And look at the comparison. It's a connection. The Old Testament, people will say the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So Peter, as he writes this, he understands the connotation. He's pointing back to that, that Passover lamb. He says, hey, we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ just as a lamb without blemish or spot, just like the, it, that our forefathers had called for in the book of Exodus. And so even though there was blood shed, it needed to be applied. And we're going to look at how to apply the blood in upcoming lessons. See, the prophets understood the, ta- the typology. I'm going to use that term, typology, meaning something in the Old Testament representing other things. So, for instance, in this case, well, what are you talking about? You're talking about an innocent animal that was killed and blood was applied to a doorpost. That blood was, the scripture says, that blood was the sign. So when the death angel went through those Egyptian streets, that it would see the covering of the blood and say, that home cannot be touched because it's under the protection of the blood. I want that in my life. And that's why in the New Testament, when Jesus steps on the scene and comes and makes a public appearance, his cousin John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he looks up in John 1.29, and he says in front of the whole crowd, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That group knew what he was saying, no doubt, as he made that connection back to the Old Testament. Because those lambs, we're going to see hundreds and millions of gallons of bloodshed from animal sacrifices. But it never totally took care of sin. It just would push it off and cover it for a short time. But John, the reason we're not killing animals anymore is because Jesus Christ became that lamb. He provided the shedding of blood that gives us a covering as people. But just like his blood, it's powerful. And because of that blood, no one should perish. But just because the blood shed, it's not, it doesn't reach its full potential in our lives until the blood is applied. How do we do that? Well, we're going to look at that. But I want you to see the important connection between the way things in the Old Testament pointed to things to come. Things in the New Testament, typology, representing those things. Because we're going to look more at that in our very next lesson. Because there's also a type of water in the Old Testament. But then there's a type of water in the New Testament. That's what makes the Bible one of the most amazing books written. The most amazing book written in humanity. God always had a plan. So even as you read the details of one story that takes place thousands of years earlier... The New Testament rolls around in Jesus, his disciples, and even the Apostle Paul will reference stories in the Old Testament, and they will see the fulfillment of those stories and those prophecies in their own lives in the New Testament. So these stories we are looking for, these themes that we're looking at, they're personal themes. It's not just like, oh yeah, let's, let's talk, remember, remember now, just to review, we looked at Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and now Moses, and it's just, I want you to memorize those names because there's going to be a test. Listen, there's no test. If the, this is not just a study of history. Hopefully, if you like history, you're enjoying this, but it's so much deeper. It's a personal understanding of, wow, God had a theme for salvation of grace, faith, and obedience. There was a theme of bloodshed, that there, their, their story of salvation is what can shed light on our own story of salvation. And just like the blood saved and delivered them from Egypt, Egypt is a type and shadow of sin, by the way. God delivered his people out of a land of sin through the blood. 
But what about when they come to the water? Well, that's where we're going to pick up in our next lesson. We're going to see what happens when God leads them out of a land of sin and they start to hit the Red Sea and run into other issues on the way to their place of promise.